and welcome to Grand Final History. In this episode, we go back to the 21st season of the VFL, and the fourth season played while World War I raged. 1917 was a momentous year in global history, and for Australia. The United States entered the war after Germany began unrestricted submarine warfare, resulting in American ships being sunk. In Russia, the Tsar abdicated, resulting in a short-lived interim government, followed by the Communist Revolution, and soon after, Russia offered peace terms to the Germans. If you want to know more of the details, listen to the Revolutions podcast by Mike Duncan. It's a cracker. On the Western Front, many battles were being fought for little exchange of territory, but huge losses of life. There were mutinies in the French army, and fears that the British would have to retreat back to the United Kingdom. In Australia, there was an election in May. Billy Hughes, who had been the leader of the Labour Party, but was expelled after the failure of the first conscription referendum, led the Nationalist Party to a landslide victory. In August, there was a series of major strikes and mass demonstrations, sparked by war weariness and high prices across the eastern states, involving approximately 100,000 workers over 82 days, disrupting transport and industry, particularly in New South Wales. State and federal governments organised volunteer strike breakers to keep coal mines and trains running, and the strikes were officially ended by union leaders in September, even though many workers tried to continue the campaign for another two weeks. Then, in November, when enlistments were still below the rate needed to replace soldiers lost to death and injury, Billy Hughes called a second conscription referendum. The poll, taking place in December after another bitterly divisive campaign, with the no votes winning by a slightly larger majority than in the first referendum. It was a challenging year for many people on many different fronts at the war and at home. At the start of the year, there were some letters from players and umpires serving on the front lines published in the paper. They described horrific conditions, such as mud up to their necks, relentless shelling putting nerves on edge, doctors treating patients while standing in three feet of water, and so forth. I'm surprised that such vivid descriptions were allowed past the censors. One report in the Argus described a footy game held in France. The match was between the officers and the non-commissioned officers. The ground was quite a change from the suburban ovals where players would have learnt the game. It was within shelling range of the Germans, and the centre was marked by two enormous craters, with two unexploded shells at the bottom. Behind the southern goal was a mound, a burial ground for unknown soldiers. The melting snow made for a slippery surface, and the standard of play was not quite up to league levels. But despite the conditions, morale was boosted with the unique match, and the non-commissioned officers beat the officers by six goals straight, 36 to two goals, two behinds, 14. Away from the war and other international events, a small reminder of what travel between Melbourne and Sydney looked like if you were trying to fly in 1917. Flight Lieutenant Stutt made the journey in record time in 1917, becoming the first pilot to complete the journey in a single day. He had some engine trouble and stopped in Cootamundra, 
leaving his passenger behind to make their own way to Sydney. The flying time for the trip to Sydney was 7 hours, 10 minutes, at about 80 miles per hour. Trips are a little faster these days. Let's focus on the footy now. Late January brought news from South Australia that their league would not be playing football in 1917 due to the war. But no decision had yet been made by the VFL. By the end of March, it was reported that six teams would play in the coming season. South Melbourne had decided to return to the game. They felt that they had done the right thing in the year before, and with 16 players enlisted, they were clearly not a barrier to recruitment. Now they had the opportunity to raise much-needed patriotic funds. Geelong agreed to return as a strictly amateur club. The committee had decided that playing games would not interfere with recruitment and that there would be an increased amount of patriotic funds raised if they played. Also, factoring into their decision was a fear that if other clubs agreed to play and Geelong stayed out, they would be dropped from the league altogether. The fixture was published in mid-April, with each team playing the other three times for a 15-game season before the finals. The Age made the hopeful comment that the war might be over before the finals. A forlorn hope. Essendon had been willing to rejoin as well, on the condition that the revenue from each club was pooled and the league allocated sufficient funds to cover costs for an amateur competition, allowing the profits to be donated to the war effort. There was no support for this option. Pooling funds had been a hot-button issue for many years, even during wartime. But, given the revelations on how the four clubs had allocated their expenses in 1916, the Essendon Football Club felt their position to be fully justified. The issue of payments to patriotic funds began to get some attention in February. One of the reasons the season proceeded in 1916 was the commitment that the clubs would limit the expenses and money would be raised and paid to the patriotic funds. Pivot, writing in the age towards the end of February, reviewed the financial statements of the league and Fitzroy. The league had made contributions from the takings at the four finals matches, but the bigger question was what the four playing clubs would do from their gate takings over the whole season. Fitzroy had made some donations and ended the year in the same financial position that they started. But there were some line items in the expenses that caught Pivot's eye, and he did ask about the repeated use of the phrase etc. when describing costs, rather than a clear explanation of what was involved. In April, the tone of reporting became darker, as more financial reports came to light. Carlton had not one penny credited to the Patriotic Fund, with nearly £150 going to players for loss of time and travelling expenses, many questions were going to be asked. While Fitzroy had donated £153, Richmond could only manage £100 and Collingwood just £29. Carlton had higher revenue than Richmond or Collingwood, but yet not a single pound had been donated to patriotic funds. This was a shock and a disappointment for all supporters of the game. It is hard to understand what Carlton's thinking was other than reducing existing debts rather than donating funds as promised. 
In May, the War Council made it clear that it would require clubs to produce their balance sheets for examination if they were claiming to raise funds for patriotic causes. By mid-May, it was reported that Morris Williams, the league's president, had found himself in an impossible situation. Already prominently connected with several patriotic funds and having been a vocal proponent of allowing the 1916 season to proceed as a means of raising funds, he had been left exposed by the clubs that had only donated £282 from revenue of £2,874, just 10% of revenues donated, despite a commitment to keep expenses to a minimum and players to play as amateurs. Rather than making a significant contribution to the war effort, it looked like clubs had used the revenue to cover old debts and new expenses, Carlton being the worst offender. His resignation from the league's presidency was confirmed at the league's delegate meeting at the end of May. Charles Brownlow from Geelong would fill in as acting president. There were some clubs that took offence at the actions of the War Council. They did not want to have their financial records open to an outside body. Not for the first time, nor the last time, there was an air of arrogance about the league's position as being a rule unto itself. Some clubs suggested they would even rescind the promise to give profits to war funds to avoid scrutiny. The reporting in the age did not name the clubs taking this position, but I have a suspicion that it might have been Carlton showing the greatest sensitivity, but that's just my speculation. At the May 25 delegate meeting, the League took the unusual step of publicly stating that they rejected Carlton's explanation of their financial statements. In June, the War Council took the next step, confirming that any club claiming to raise funds for war funds would have to provide their estimated expenses to the War Council for approval. Full disclosure of planned costs, backed up by a review of the club's books at the end of the year. The club's had to agree. The season started on Saturday 12th of May in fine, favourable weather, with good crowds attending the three games. The highlight was a grand final replay, a close-fought game between the reigning premiers Fitzroy and Carlton. The game was tight throughout the afternoon, with the crowd being held in suspense in a tense last quarter. The Blues could not kick a goal in the fourth quarter, and the game ended in a draw. Carlton seemed to be getting into a habit of having draws in its opening rounds, with a draw two years earlier in 1915, as well as in the first game in 1914 and 1911. South Melbourne had a win in their first game back against Geelong, and Collingwood was not troubled by Richmond. There were attempts to have recruitment speeches at each of the games, but these were met with some hostility. At the Fitzroy home game, the recruiting officer said that the committee provided no support and the public were hurling insults. While at Victoria Park during the Collingwood-Richmond game, there was support from the club committee, but the public were hostile and it was impossible to get a hearing. At the South Melbourne home ground, Sergeant Kilpatrick reported that the crowd refused to let him speak and that he received such a hostile response that he would not go again unless he had some sort of protection. The footballing public was not in the mood for recruiting messages for a war that was well into its third costly year. South celebrated their return to football by winning their first three games, before losing to Collingwood. 
but Geelong had to wait till round four to get their first win when they were able to beat Carlton in the dark at Princess Park. The game was notable for a late start, which meant that the match finished in semi-darkness at 5.30pm. The match reports had trouble picking out the players in the dark. Richmond struggled this season. In 1916, they had picked up a few Geelong players, albeit without official clearances. But with the Pivotonians back in the league, those players returned home to Geelong and the Yellow and Blacks had to make up their list as best they could. There was a bye between rounds 12 and 13. This was to allow a dedicated weekend for recruiting, marking the fourth anniversary of the start of the war on the 4th of August, known as the Anzac Holiday Reinforcement Week. When the season resumed for round 13, the level of interest was not high. The top four teams were almost locked in. Richmond had only won two games so far and was certain to pick up their first wooden spoon. For Geelong to make the finals, they would need to win the last three games and Fitzroy would need to lose their last three games. Although this seemed unlikely, Fitzroy did indeed manage to lose their last three matches, even getting beaten by Richmond in round 14. And Geelong had won in round 13, the first of the three games they needed to win. But then they lost the following week to Carlton, so the last round really did not change anything. Geelong probably felt that they could have had a chance after they beat later leaders Collingwood by two points in that final round, but they had given Fitzroy too big a head start and could not pass them at this late stage. One piece of history was made for club presidents in the Geelong-Collingwood game. As Collingwood travelled down to Corio on the train, they realised they were missing a player. Les Hughes had missed the bus to the train station. A replacement player was needed, but there were none on the train. The decision was made to put the jumper on Collingwood's president, Jim Sharp, who had last played in 1912. Sadly for President Sharp and for Collingwood, he injured his knee within minutes of starting the game and had to leave the field, leaving the team a player short, which would have helped Geelong to their victory. However, Jim Sharp holds the record for being the only club president to play a game while in office. The league received some good news in August when the Minister of Defence announced that as the season was drawing to a close, there would be no reduction in the amount of football that could be played by the competing clubs. There had been a major review by the government looking at the option of restricting the amount of sport played so that there would be more focus on the war and recruitment. Collingwood had the minor premiership and the critical right of challenge. They would play the second semi-final against South Melbourne, who had done very well in their return season to finish third, one win and a draw behind Collingwood. Carlton had finished second and would take on Fitzroy in the first semi-final. In their three matches throughout the season, Carlton and Fitzroy had played a draw and one win each. So on a head-to-head basis, there was no splitting the teams. But Carlton had the better form leading into the finals. The Blues winning their last two games while the Maroons had lost their last two matches and Carlton would want some revenge for losing the grand final in the year before. John Worrell's preview in the Australasian had Carlton as firm favourites. There were 20,000 people at the ground, about 10,000 more for the same game in 1916, indicating that the season had generated more interest with the public. As the Carlton players warmed up in the change rooms and had their rub-downs from the trainers, there was an innovative tactic used to help motivate the players. 
a banjo player was employed to pick out some tunes, and some of the players sang along. It was not a spectacular game, but rather one of those matches that is a test of endurance and physicality. Fitzroy had the wind in the first quarter and got the first couple of goals, but then Carlton worked their way back into the game and finished the quarter in front by one goal. For the remainder of the game, it was Fitzroy generally playing the better football, but their inaccuracy was keeping Carlton in the game. The final quarter saw the Blues kick two goals two to the Maroons, one goal, six behinds. A little bit of straight kicking by Fitzroy would have closed the game out, but in the end, the Maroons won the game by nine points, six goals 17 to Carlton, six goals eight. Carlton's season was over. The pre-match banjo playing had not helped the result, and Fitzroy would take on the winners of the second semi-final. Four players had been reported for a range of incidents during the game, and the Maroons' Francis Strawbridge would miss the grand final when he was suspended for three matches. Collingwood and South Melbourne had played each other three times. Collingwood had won in the second last round of the season to take a 2-1 advantage into the final. 16,000 people attended the game, despite some very poor weather. But although they braved the inclement conditions, the spectators were not rewarded with a close game. Collingwood were nine points up at half-time, but then put on a masterful display in the third quarter, kicking eight unanswered goals to put the game beyond doubt and stake further claim to premiership favouritism. In South's defence, they were at a disadvantage when Jack Brennan broke his ankle early on, and then Jim Caldwell, who was also having a good game, was injured and had to leave the field. He did return at a later point, but only to stand by the goals. It was still many years before substitute players were allowed, so the Southerners were effectively two men down against the leading team of the competition. The scores were Collingwood, 13 goals, 17-95, a thorough win over South Melbourne, 3 goals, 17-35. The final was between Collingwood and Fitzroy. Collingwood had won all three games between the two teams during the season, and Fitzroy's form leading into the finals had not been good. But, as they had shown in 1916, the Maroons had a habit of coming good at the business end of the season. But the Magpies had finished on top of the ladder, and had the right of challenge, so Fitzroy would have to beat the Magpies twice if they wanted the Premiership. 23,000 people came to the MCG, and they saw a brilliant game of football. There was high-marking displays of skills and athleticism, and a close-fought result that had some spectators saying it was the best game seen in years. After the one-sided affair the week before, this game was close for all four quarters. A few minutes before the final bell, the scores were level, and a brilliant dash by Percy Parrott put Fitzroy a goal up. A minute later, James Freak took a run towards an undefended goal, and put the Maroons two goals up. Their supporters thought they had the game sewed up. They would force another game and could still claim the premiership. But the game was not over yet. Collingwood had not ended up on top of the ladder by accepting defeat at any point. Out of the centre flew the ball towards the Magpies forward line. A great mark was taken by Charles Lee, who passed on to Charles Laxton, who fired a handball off to Penn Reynolds, who scored Collingwood's seventh goal. It was only six points of difference. But that was the final piece of play. The bell rang to end the game and 23,000 spectators could take a breath. For the second year in a row, 
Fitzroy had come from fourth to defeat the top team and force a grand final match. Would they be able to repeat the effort of 1916 and go all the way to take out the premiership? The grand final was held on Saturday, September 22nd. The umpire was Arthur Norton for his third premiership match in a row. He had umpired the final the week before and been praised for his control of the game and quick decision making and once again had been awarded the biggest match of the season. Collingwood's captain was Percy Wilson. At 5 foot 6 or 168 centimetres, he was small even in these early days of the game. He had joined the Magpies in 1909 and would end up playing for 16 years and more than 200 games, many of them as Rover. He had taken over the captaincy in round six when Jock McHale had been injured, and he spent the season playing in the centre, giving him the ability to control the game and was considered by the newspapers of the day as the best player for the season. When McHale returned to the team late in the season, he insisted that Percy Wilson keep the captaincy, given the way that he'd been playing and leading the team on the field. Wilson would eventually move to Melbourne as playing coach in 1922 to finish his career with four more seasons, with the best wishes of the Collingwood committee, who recognised and thanked him for his years of service and wished him well, even if they did describe him as being in his declining years. A non-smoker who was never reported or rebuked in his playing career, Percy Wilson was even cheered and given an ovation when he returned to Victoria Park in Melbourne Colours. A rare honour from the Magpie supporters. Collingwood was coached by Jock McHale, as they had been since 1912. A playing coach at this point in his career, he had taken over as captain after Dan Minogue had enlisted in the army and shipped out after the 1916 season. But injury early in 1917 meant that he returned to the field as playing coach, with Wilson holding onto the captaincy. This would be Jock McHale's second grand final as coach, after losing to Carlton in 1915. That year, two of his players, who were enlisted in the army, had spent the morning on a 16km route march, before being driven to the game. There would be no repeat of that drama this year. McHale had missed the final game, but would return to the field for the grand final. The other big in for Collingwood was star forward Dick Lee. He had not played since injuring his knee against South Melbourne in round 14, but for this crucial game, the Magpies decided to risk his return. It did mean that Thomas Wraith, who had been an effective forward during the season, only missing one game and kicking 13 goals, was the unlucky player dropped to make way for Lee. Wraith will not be the last player that is dropped for a grand final after playing well for most of the season. Football can be a tough game. The other player left out was half-back flanker Bert Colchin. Collingwood had been sent a special gift from one of their players who was serving on the front line in France. Malcolm Doxedden, who had been one of the players on that 16km route march before the 1915 grand final, had sent a horseshoe made from part of a German artillery shell. The nails were from a German airplane that had been shot down by the Australians at the Somme. In the letter that accompanied the gift, Seddon said that he had recently seen former Collingwood skipper Dan Minogue, who was looking well. Mal Seddon said that he hoped the horseshoe would bring the boys to the top of the tree this year. The horseshoe was nailed up on the wall of the MCG change rooms before the game 
and regarded as a good omen by the Magpie players. But it does make you wonder about the conditions that players like Seddon and Minogue and all the soldiers serving on the front were facing. Maintaining a connection with their former life through letters and gifts must have been so important. Fitzroy would be captained by George Holden, a live-wire wingman who had joined the Maroons in 1908 and would play to 1919 for a total of 165 games. He had been the playing coach in 1916, but took over as captain coach in the 1917 season. The Maroons also had two changes from the previous week. James Atkinson was out injured, and George Lambert was also out. Into the side came Bill Byrne in the back pocket, and Tom Lowry in the forward pocket. 28,400 people were at the MCG for the grand final, a record for the season, and 7,000 more than the 1916 grand final. The crowd was also 5,000 people up on the previous week. Clearly they were hoping for a repeat of the excitement and fine football that both teams displayed on that occasion. Collingwood had been the leading team across the season and were looking for a premiership to match their top-of-the-ladder result. Fitzroy had finished four games behind Collingwood, but as they had shown in 1916, they had an ability to play well at the business end of the season. From the start of the first quarter, it was Collingwood setting the pace. But despite dominating the play for the first 10 minutes, all they had to show for their efforts were four behinds. Then a free kick was awarded to the Maroons' Charlie Norris, who scored the first goal of the day. Fitzroy were playing a physical game, but Collingwood were not to be distracted. Before the quarter had gone too much longer, Dick Lee had made the selectors feel justified in their decision to play the champion. He had two goals and Collingwood were looking in control of the play. The quarter time score was Collingwood, two goals, six behinds, 18, to Fitzroy on one goal, six points. The spectators were beginning to wonder whether they were going to see the exciting game they had come for or was it going to be a one-sided affair. In the second quarter, it was Collingwood showing the greater pace and spending more time in front of their opponents. But Fitzroy's backman had also lifted and they were putting more pressure onto their opponents. The game had tightened up, but it was not achieving the standard of the previous week. At halftime, the scores were Collingwood, 3 goals 8-26, to Fitzroy, 2 goals 2-14. The gap was 2 goals, just as it had been at quarter time, but it was still Collingwood, with their more accurate passing, that were looking the better team. During the halftime break, the Royal Park Military Band played patriotic selections, and around the ground, recruiting sergeants made appeals for volunteers. They were listened to, but no response was made by the audience. Perhaps on this Saturday afternoon, they wanted to forget about the war and focus on football for a couple of hours. The first ten minutes of the third quarter saw Fitzroy making a move and giving their supporters some reason to cheer. Freak and Rattray both had shots and goals that did not result in a score. But then, Percy Parrott made sure of his kick and the Maroons were within four points. Now, perhaps the game would pick up and deliver a competition worthy of a grand final. There was a buzz going around the crowd as the anticipation grew. But then, Collingwood started to take control again. From about the 15-minute mark, the traffic was one way into the Magpies' forward line and they put on three goals, despite some wasteful efforts in front of the big sticks. When the three-quarter time bell rang out, It was Collingwood Barrackers making all the noise around the MCG. They had good reason to be cheerful. Their team was up 6 goals 14.50 
to Fitzroy on three goals four, 22. Fitzroy's forward pocket Tom Lowry had an easy chance to get a quick goal at the start of the last quarter that might have given the Maroons some hope, but like most of the game so far, they did not take advantage of the opportunity. Collingwood cleared the ball out of their back line and started peppering the goals, but not with any accuracy. Wilson and Dick Lee missed gettable shots, picking up more behinds for the Collingwood score. In the middle of the quarter, Fitzroy's halfback flanker Chris Lethbridge dashed forward and kicked long into their forward line, clearing many players and giving Tom Lowry an opportunity for an important mark. But he missed the grab and the ball dropped clear. However, Gordon Rattray was quick enough to pick up the loose ball and take a long shot to score the Maroons' fourth goal. Fitzroy supporters' hopes lifted. Their cheers went out across the ground, willing their boys on to steal another goal and give them a chance for an improbable win. But it was not going to be a time of miracles. Collingwood had been the dominant team all season and were not disturbed by the attempted challenge. Dick Lee showed why he was known as a champion forward by taking a strong mark and scoring the Magpies' seventh goal. But even now, Fitzroy made another effort. A kick into the forward line towards Tom Lowry, who again missed the mark, but the loose ball was gathered by Jim Tui, who had moved to centre-half forward in the last quarter, and he kicked his first goal of the day in Fitzroy's fifth. Maybe they were not out of it yet. But it was not to be. A long drop kick by Collingwood's Harry Curtis sealed the game, and then Dick Lee got one more for his fourth in a grand final, just before the bell rang. The final scores were Collingwood 9 goals 20-74, to Fitzroy 5 goals 9-39. Fitzroy had pushed the Magpies into a grand final match, but when it mattered, the best team of the season, had taken control of the game and were deserving premiers in 1917. It was the club's fourth premiership and Jock McHale's first premiership as a coach. And we will see that he will have more successes in the years to come. And because of McHale's generous decision when returning from injury, Percy Wilson would forever be known as a Collingwood premiership captain. That was season 1917, the 21st for the league and the fourth season that football had been played in a time of war. Six clubs had competed and it seemed that the attention of the war committee and the greater scrutiny of expenses would mean all clubs making significant donations to patriotic funds. But that would have to wait until clubs reveal their financial reports in 1918. The six-team competition had attracted more spectators to the games and to the finals, even if crowds were still down on pre-war years. The Collingwood Premiership team were given a smoke concert in early October, where they enjoyed music, celebrated their success, and were rewarded gold medals as a memento of their achievement. The league had been much criticised in some segments for keeping the season going, but it was reported that one member of the War Council had praised the league for its support of war efforts, its willingness to have a bye for the special recruiting weekend and the fact that men at the front were interested in how their clubs were faring. Also that the game provided some much-needed entertainment at the weekend rather than leaving people with nothing to do, which could result in more harm. So join me next time as we look at season 1918 as the war approaches its end and Essendon and St Kilda rejoin the league for an eight-team competition. If you've enjoyed Grand Final History, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from. The more goals we kick, the easier it is for others to find the podcast.
If you have questions or you want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au or check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or Facebook or Twitter for more Grand Final History. Mm-hmm.